Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Growing Woman podcast. I am so excited for today's episode and so excited to dive in with today's guest. First and foremost, I just want to thank everyone for their support of the show. It has been so wonderful to read your reviews and your comments and see the the listeners grow, which is really, really exciting. And it's just so meaningful for me. So thank you so much for supporting this show and this new adventure and journey of mine. I am your host, Christina Singh. And today we have a dear friend of mine on the show, her name is Trisha Tate, and I literally cannot wait to talk to her about her journey. Um, she is one of the smartest and strongest people I know, and I'm just going to read a little bit, uh, read to you a little bit more about her and her company. So Trisha Tate is the CEO of The Art of Money Matters, your outsourced CFO and treasurer of the National Association of Women Business Owners on the New York City Board. A warden undergrad, a Duke MBA, and a former Wall Street professional, Trisha has spent the past 10 years helping CEOs improve their profitability, cash flow, and operations in preparation for fast growth or a sale. Trisha is also the, the founder of Power Her Financials, a movement to educate, engage, and empower women entrepreneurs and executives about their business financials so we can grow to a million plus and beyond. Amen. Trisha, welcome, welcome, welcome. Hey, thank you for having me on. Thank <laughs> you, so, Christina. Yeah, I'm so thrilled you're here. You and I know each other just like so many other people on the show <laughs> um, <laughs> know each other, and that is through networking. Mm -hmm. um, we are in the same networking group, and I remember the first time I saw you, which is mm -hmm. maybe a creepy thing to say, but yeah. I remember when I first came to one of our networking meetings, I was just a guest, and I remember you got up and you're already secretary treasurer of the group, you were in a leadership role, and you were just, I remember your arms being super buff, and then I also remember you just being such a force to be reckoned with, and that I just thought you were so confident and so cool, and I, was like, I have to get to know this person some more. That's so amazing. You. <laughs> you never know the impact that you have on people. It's so, somebody told me this once, um, a coach, he said, your presence and your absence has power. Mm -hmm. And I never really realized that. I knew, I knew, my, I knew my presence did. Um, because you know, there's there's like an an energy that that comes with me. It could be very passionate in in both ways. Yeah. Um, and my friend describes it. My really good friend, she describes it as my atmosphere. But I didn't know. Ooh, you, I love that. Right. You're like right. Your you came with all your atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Not everyone could take your atmosphere all at once. No. Um. But yeah, your presence and your absence, Christina has power. We're already kicking off the show with such good nuggets of wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> so Trisha, I want to dive into your business, but I want to, I want to dive into how you got there. And cause you have such a, a cool background and you made such a drastic transition in your life, which isn't so drastic once you get to know you, but, um, can you tell us where you grew up and how you ended up in the finance world? So first let's start with where you grew up. 
So I grew up from, I'm a Brooklyn native. I grew up in East Flatbush. Um, I am a first generation American. Both of my parents are from Trinidad and Tobago. Um, uh, I grew up with, you know, I, I feel like I grew up as a Trinidadian that just happens to be a US citizen. Um, because every, everyone I went to school with, my entire neighborhood, everything I knew, mm. um, all of my values, all the ways that I grew up were, are very rooted in, Caribbean, in the Caribbean way uh, yeah. of life. And um, it's not until I was, a, I was a nerdy kid and I loved school. And um, Didn't you go to math I, camp? I did I go to America? I don't know. I probably did. I love math. <laughs> I remember when there was a, there was a, um, I went to high school. I went to a boarding school uh, mm. for high school. I had never heard of boarding school before the time that I applied. And I, I went to Phillips Academy and over. It was the only boarding school that I applied to. Also, I would have been at, um, at uh, inner city school or Bronx school of science. Um, so I went, when I went to Andover, I took BC, I took AB and BC calculus, but I took BC calculus with like my favorite math professor of all time. And for Christmas holiday, he gave us this sheet of like a hundred integrals uh, to do these hundred like derivative things. It's my favorite homework of all time. But anyway. Uh, I, I love this so much because you're the first person on this show to talk about their upbringing and be like, I loved my math homework. I loved my math homework. <laughs> I really did love math. I mean, it was very logical for me. Like the, you know, it. the critical reasoning and all of that uh, on the SATs and standardized tests. I hated standardized tests, but the math part I loved. And somehow I thought math, like, what do you do with math? A career in business. Like I could have been a math professor. I could have been a math major. In yeah. fact, I probably would have done even better in college. But um, I thought math equaled business, and therefore in business, there's finance and accounting. So let me apply to undergraduate programs that had uh, business programs. And so I applied to a bunch of liberal arts colleges, as well as uh, University of Pennsylvania, which had Wharton undergrad program and Emory and Georgetown, which also had undergraduate programs. So I got into University of Pennsylvania, and this is to tell you, like, this is just still first-generation mentality. Um, I got into Wharton. That year, I think the MBA part of Wharton became, like, the top business school in, on the U.S. News World Report. And I remember someone say, you got into Wharton? And I was like, I guess so. So I called University of Pennsylvania and I said, hey, I know I got into this business program because when you apply, you have to apply into a school. I see. Yeah. You have to write. You have to apply directly into a school of nursing, communications, whatever it is. So I got into uh, Wharton as an undergrad and I called them and I said, hey, I got into this. I got into the business program. Is that Wharton? Like, I mean, really? You just didn't know. I you didn't were just know. not associated. Even it. when I was applying, I didn't know it was, the, it was like this institution yeah. where wall street people go to and yeah. i was in there so and that's how i started my path down finance and accounting so i want to backtrack a little bit to your upbringing with how you said you know your first generation and did your parents instill this love of academics in you where did that come from 
Um, I would say by osmosis. I mean, uh, both of them came to this country and went to college and achieved mm-hmm. their master's. My mother was in nursing. My dad uh, became a CPA. And so he worked in the banking industry. And when I think about it, I didn't necessarily, I didn't, I didn't directly want to follow him or try to follow him. I actually wanted to be, I wanted to be a doctor and I wanted to work with babies because my mother was an RN in the OBGYN ward. Mm -hmm. And after school, I'd go to her, her office and I'd always pass the babies and the new mothers. And I just always had a fascination about it. But then when I got to college and I realized what it took to be a doctor, I was like, I'm like <laughs> <laughs> I don't need an extra 12 years of school. Like, I'm done. I'm just going to pursue. Right. I was going to be crazy, again, crazy, because I didn't know what Wharton was, the beast that it was. I thought that I was going to be, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be a business major, but I'm going to do these undergraduate science classes and then go to business school. And wow. that didn't and it work out. So I stay just with, uh, with my business degree. Yeah. So growing up, were your parents strict on you? Uh, yes. My mom, I mean, I grew, <laughs> up, I grew up primarily with my mom and I'm, I'm an only child. And, um, you know, she was, she was, I mean, that was like our upbringing, not like I was a bad kid. I tell her right now, I tell her now, like, you know, what, what are you fussing about? I don't cause you any problems in life just relax. Um, it was tough on me. And, you know, there was a, there was a standard of excellence, which was expected. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, for a lot of people who are first generation Americans, their parents want them to be stable and want them to survive and want them to be excellent. And for a lot of parents that migrated to this country, that looks like a job as a doctor or a lawyer or uh, an engineer mm-hmm. or something like that. And so I guess subconsciously, I kind of followed that pathway. But what was in my heart was a passion for dance and the creative. And I never really saw uh, how being like my extracurricular activity would turn into a real career or quote unquote real job. And so I never fully pursued it. I pursued it through student-led or, you know, student-led organizations in college and in junior high school, but like I never fully pursued it as a thing. And the, and the more I tried to resist the thing that I am passionate about is the Mm. more it like circles back, it circles its way back into my life until like I couldn't fight it. I couldn't fight it in like 2006. Like after business school, I just, I couldn't fight it. So let's go to business school. So, cause I am the daughter of an immigrant of, uh, you know, for I'm first generation on my dad's side. So I totally understand what you're saying about that expectation and mm-hmm. uh, the, just the kind of standard that's already there. So yeah. you're in business school. What was that like? How um, was experience? How was my experience? I loved, um, I went to Duke University's FUPA School of Business. So you went, um, you were at Wharton first yes. and then you went to Duke. Yes. And people were like, you went to Wharton. Why do you need to go back to business school? Um, you know, truthfully, I felt like um, 
you know, Wharton was a great experience. It was an intense experience. And I think you don't fully appreciate all of the learnings when you're still college aged. Um, and so I felt like uh, after it, it was a great platform and a way for me to enter corporate America and Wall Street. I mean, I worked at Merrill Lynch uh, for four years because of my education at, at Wharton. Um, but there was a time where I was like, there are other ways that I could use finance. There must be other ways. Like, what does Gap do? Like, what do the people at, at these other stores do? Uh, they must have a finance person. And so I was looking for a way actually to transition out of Wall Street or, or finance in that way and look at finance from a different perspective in a different kind of company. And I figured the way to transition was to go back to business school, kind of relearn what I didn't really focus on and find other ways that I can leverage the skill set that I had. And that was okay. what I wanted to do. That was the goal. So you were at Wharton and then you graduated and you spent four years in the working world. Right. What was that transition like? Like what, cause you worked at Merrill Lynch. What was that interview like? Like how did, how did that come about? Um, I don't even remember. <laughs> what I remembered was what I vividly remember going to like all of these presentations uh, for, cause you know, you work towards getting an internship first. Okay. And I remember going to these company presentations and I, I met, this is dating myself. I met this investment banker at Solomon Smith Barney. Cause I've been hearing about investment banking, investment banking, investment banking, because the people who know about Wharton, clearly you're going there to either get a job in sales and trading, investment banking, or consulting. Hmm. So I was like, maybe I should figure out what this investment banking is. So I asked this guy at Solomon Smith Barney, what does he do? What is his life like? Hmm. And what is the difference between an investment banker and a sales and trader? Like I felt like such an idiot for asking the question. But you were curious and you But were. I was but I was a sophomore. Like that's the you know that you know, like you're still in college figuring things out and to feel like an idiot because you're amongst people that already know what Wall Street is about. Yeah, you're literally and, nineteen. Yeah. It's kind of crazy, but you feel like an idiot because you're amongst the wow. sea of other amazing people. So I asked him, and after he told me, I said, I'm not doing investment banking. <laughs> I realized it was a whole lifestyle that was just I, great. The, the, the skill set is amazing. I was like, I'm not going to do that. So therefore, sales and trading. So I looked at sales and trading jobs, and I ended up in an equity sales job at Merrill Lynch for private clients. And I don't remember the interview process. <laughs> what was that role like? I mean, one thing I really wanted to talk to you about was being a woman in this world mm -hmm. and also being a woman of color in this world. What was your experience at Merrill Lynch like? Like, how did that work? Um, so I was an intern at Merrill Lynch for mm -hmm. a couple of summers. And I loved the energy of the training floor. Um, I love the fast pace. At the time, I used to watch CNBC all of, the, all of the time. I used to be into the news. I used to know about the earnings and what company was doing what. It was fascinating to hear about what companies are doing, coming up with, and um, you know how the consumer ends up 
interacting with these companies because you're hearing about these corporations like knowing that time warner cable and aol were going to come together and how that merger like knowing about it from the business side but then as a consumer how does it you know that kind of stuff was very interesting to me so i just love being there i didn't really pay attention to the woman versus male concept yeah what became present for me and because throughout my entire life from the time that i was at phillips academy and over i have been the only person of color in a room mm. still to this day uh it was a little more daunting and uncomfortable when i was in high school definitely in college by the time that i got to wall street it felt normal which is oh. interesting yeah um it just felt normal I, and I've never been like direct, I had never been the results or at the receiving end of any direct um, racial discrimination. However, there was a point in my career where I had been in a certain place for at least two or three years. And I saw this other chick that, chick, sorry, but (laughs) that... (laughs) that did not that was not in my department she was in some other department doing something else and she had and she was new she so she she was younger than me yeah. and like they started giving her opportunities to do things and i'm like she's not equipped she doesn't know that stuff like so that's when i started it started to feel like what is this about what did you do i didn't do a thing except just observe the situation yeah. You know, at the time, I was too young to know how to voice my opinion and how to be strategic about these situations. Mm. Now I've learned a little bit more how to. Um, And then I saw her, like, them elevating her. And then I saw intentionally one of my bosses, like, elevate her in these group meetings. And I was on this webinar recently, (laughs) and she gave us five minutes to write down a moment that impacted our lives where we either did not step up for ourselves and ask for what we deserved or we did. Yeah. And I remember working at Merrill Lynch and knowing that I deserved assistant vice president. And then this, and there was a salary freeze because it was during the time of the tech bubble, one of the, one of the depressions that, or the recessions that we kind of forget. And they stopped, hi- they stopped, increasing salaries and they had a hiring freeze. So the next best thing you're going to do is reward people. So this huge list came out at, in Merrill Lynch of all the new AVPs, vice presidents, senior directors, managing directors, blah, blah, blah. Right. And I knew that clearly I'm going to be on this list. And I look at this public list, well, internally public, and my name is not there. Yeah. And I think after all of those months and probably a year of feeling like sidelined, I was pissed off. Yeah. Was her name there? I don't remember. It might have been. But that moment still was so big for you. So big that I just wrote about it last week. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? I went over to my boss at the time and I said to him, um, and you know, I did it in a diplomatic way. I said, I thought my name was going to be on this thing. If since it's not, what do I have to do in order to make sure the next time I'm considered for AVP? And he was surprised. He was like, it wasn't there. 
And I was looking at him like, you shady man, you know, it wasn't there, but maybe he didn't genuinely know. Um, (laughs) But your impression was that this person had that power to, to have your name be populated on a list after observing your work and, and being your boss, that this was something that was going to be that next step for you is essentially what you're saying. Yes, it was, it was necessary because if you're not going to increase the pay and, and, you know, and there's a, and, and I knew in my mind that I was preparing to go to business school and that I'd have to apply Mm -hmm. and they want on your business school applications to see progression and growth. Right. So I knew I had to get that AVP before I left. And so when I talked to him and he said, well, your name wasn't there. Like that's, I'm surprised. And I said, well, yes. So what do I need to do? And right. he was like, oh, I, you know, I will get it done because I submitted your name for AVP. Now he got it done and then officially in the system, but I didn't get that moment of recognition with the list of other names. That you just saw other people naturally getting. Yes. You. Yes. I always felt like, and I still to this day, I always felt like I, had to, I worked so hard. And some people don't work as hard and they just get things. So what was the biggest lesson that you learned from that moment? I mean, obviously you're still writing about it and it's Mm -hmm. still there. I have those moments in my career as well, where they just stick with you. We talked to Nina um, on an episode of, of the show where she had a moment where she called it the shoulder tap moment, that little tap on your shoulder that maybe it's time for the next thing. So what did you okay. learn? How did you evolve from that? What I learned is you have to manage your career. Mm-hmm. You have to, you have to manage your career. People are not always going to hand things to you. Um, what I also learned is that uh, in managing your career, you have to know that you deserve it. Yeah. So, you know, Nowadays, unfortunately, there's a generation of people or just people in general that feel like they deserve a raise because they came out the womb and they just are present in life, (laughs) right? Uh, I think people need to know, uh, you know, where they they stand and if they're really, you know, valid in their ask. And then I think uh, I, I grew up with, you know, a bunch of very forward, strong women that run the show. Okay, they're bossy. And, you know, I could be bossy too, but um, I learned it's important to, when it, when it counts yeah. as a woman, to really stand up for yourself. And sometimes it's not even in the person's purview. It's not on purpose. Like they got a lot of other things going on. And so it's important to ask. And my thing, I have two kind of mottos. One is, what's the worst that can happen? They'll say no. Mm -hmm. If you don't ask, you don't even put yourself in the running. That's my first one. My second one is, what is your why? I came to the what is your why later in life. Yeah. um, In figuring out like the next stage and the next path. But you should always know your why that you're doing something. Yeah. I think this is so powerful, um, particularly because we hear so much about people. And like you're talking about your experience, the natural progression like the natural progression of people in their jobs. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're just going to be offered that new position or offered that salary. And 
what I think, I mean, we know from so many stories coming out that women are afraid to ask. They're really afraid to ask for their next promotion, their next pay raise, you know, more responsibility, less responsibility because they have right. too much on their plate. Right. And I, I think it's really great that you went and you talked to your boss and said, hey, you know, what is this here? Because you could have easily just taken it and felt all of those emotions and kept them in right. and not said anything. But what you said is you're learning that you have to advocate for yourself because mm -hmm. if you're staying stuck, then it's not, it's just not going to change. You have to be the manager of your own career. And then it becomes your fault. Right. If you don't, if you don't, cause you, 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 I mean, that was the first major lesson that that was the first time that I learned that lesson. The second time that I learned that lesson of standing up for yourself was, you know, transitioning between being a like corporate Wall Street professional and being a creative person and honoring that part of myself and being bold and courageous about it when everyone else didn't understand or was it sure or thought I was crazy because I had this million dollar education. You went to these schools. And so why would you want to do that thing? Um, yeah. Yeah. I think. Can we a, talk about that thing? Because we, we um, alluded to your artistic and creative side, but mm -hmm. we're kind, we're still at, at Merrill Lynch. And so like you went to business school at Duke, mm -hmm. you graduated from Duke and you were working where? So while I was at Duke, uh, I didn't want to go back to Wall Street, but I ended up, <laughs> I ended up interning at another, um, at a bank and a major, at a major bank. So because of that internship and I got an offer, I just kind of took the easy way out and I, you know, I went there full time. Uh, in, when I was, when I was younger, I, went like I was part of a dance school and you know a lot of little girls do that so okay uh, I did that thing before before high school um I, I, in high school I pursued sports because I had never seen like lacrosse and volleyball and all of these things so I yeah. pursued that but I didn't really pursue dance when I went to college I got connected to a community and a student-led organization called African Rhythms that um reopened and re-engaged me in dance and the performing arts in a way that I hadn't explored, that I had started to explore when I was younger, but I hadn't fully explored. And in fact, when I think about my college life, that has the greatest impression on me. In fact, Just that dance group. The, the dance group, everything around it. It became, mm -hmm. because I was infused, because I was in Philadelphia, I was also infused in a dance community. So the student-led organization took me to the world of dance in Philadelphia. Wow. So I was having these Wharton classes and the thing that supported me through my college experience was this dance community that I wow. found. And so there were New York instructors that would come into Philly and like I hadn't even, I hadn't even leveraged the New York City dance scene because I started like really investigating it in Philly. And so I did that through college. And when I came to New York, when I was working at Merrill Lynch, I was so involved in my career that I didn't really pursue dance in New York. So fast forward now, I'm in business school 
And something happens my second year. I don't know what it was, but there was a part of my spirit that was completely unsatisfied and completely sad with the direction in which I was going. I just kind of felt like I was following the herd back to Wall Street. I was taking the easy way out. And in fact, a good girlfriend of mine felt, um, she was like, Trisha, why are you not signing, in, signing up for all these leadership positions? Because the second year of business school, you kind of tend to take on like the leadership of different groups. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I wasn't feeling it. I wasn't into it. I had no idea what was happening to me. And there was, in North Carolina, there was a dance community that I had learned about. And there was a dance legend that had a dance company there. And I started taking classes like on the periphery, outside, outside of school. And it reawakened that thing. Mm. And I was so scared. I got an opportunity to defer a year of my offer. It was to go to Citigroup. And I auditioned for this dance company in North Carolina. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I was scared as hell to tell anybody. But the first thing that I did is I made sure that that employment would be there when I finished this year. And I got it in, I got a letter in writing because my immigrant mom, you know, my, my mom was like, what are you doing? Wow. So you told your parents. I eventually did, but I first asked my employer that, yeah. and it was one decision maker. That is the beauty of it. The beauty of it is at, at Citigroup, there could be so many HR layers. But because of this program that I was in, the program director was the only person that I needed to get approval from to defer a year of employment. Yeah. And, and in hindsight, she actually transitioned out of corporate America two years later. So she was probably on her own journey out. So interesting how you meet like, those people. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why she was probably open to it in the first place. And I got an opportunity and I was a dancer full time for a year with the low pay, body hurting, nine to five dancing, performing. And it completely reawakened something in me that I had laid, that I had just let fall apart and die within myself, which was my creative and artistic ability. And after that year, I came back to New York. I worked for two years at at Citigroup. And, um, which was a wonderful experience because I got to live in Hong Kong and work there, but the recession hit in 2009 and they laid me off. And I was like, what am I going to do with myself? No one's hiring finance people. And I was like, what am I going to do with my day? I started taking dance classes in New York. Wow. And so you got laid off. And so, so when you had this year happen, this beautiful year of your life, what did that feel like? Um, what it felt like was, um, it felt hard. It felt like an unknown. It felt like I was in incubation, Mm. like rebirthing something. Yeah. It felt like joy. I cut my hair off. I went natural, uh, I don't know. Just it just opened something else. But there you got this, had this release. I had a release, but there was, but right with the release was huge fear. 
yeah. huge concern about what everyone else was going to think. I didn't want to go back to my business school reunions. I didn't want to go back to any reunions because I felt like I was trying to figure out a thing and people were going to ask, well, what are you doing next? And here's what I'm doing next. And you'd start comparing yourself to people who were excelling in their jobs and their roles. And here I am, like what looks like filling, fulfilling a 20 something year old dream. And at the point I was like thirties and complete fear. I had never, I, I don't know anyone who's charted a course like that. Mm-hmm. Most people, most people, if they go into dance, they do it at a younger age. And by the way, I felt like an, ins- an imposter to the dance world because people who are dancers by 30 something, they have been dancing since 13 continuously and aspiring to a particular place. So I kind of felt like in the middle of these two places where I didn't belong and it was, it was a release for me spiritually, but it was incredibly lonely. Yeah, but you did it. I did. Again, anyway. advocating for yourself. Yeah. You know what? I didn't have a choice. Right. The universe did not give me a choice. The universe backed me into a corner and said, we're going to take away this you know, corporate finance job that you just clearly don't know how to jump off the train. It's like a life vest. Yeah. I'm going to take off this security vest. And what are you going to do? I'm going to give you all the time in the world. And so now what are you going to do with yourself? Yeah. And that's, and that completely the universe. And so now when that happens in my life, because every five, four or five years, like the universe and my spirit just says, you need to shift. You need to move on. And it literally, it feels like I call it the tectonic plates of life. You know, when they talk about (laughs) how the earth is shifting and moving and that's why we have like great like the icebergs are melting and that's why you know mountains are shifting and that's how we got the grand canyon all of those things you know when they talk about that that's what it feels like internally it feels like all these things are moving and it feels very unsettling very daunting very eerie yeah and you're just and you know what you're supposed to do in that moment what i've learned just be still be still and wait because it's just going to reveal itself. Whatever that next thing is, like all of a sudden you start meeting these people, being in these places, and they all seem connected. And you're like, hmm, right. somebody's conspiring against me. But really it's like the universe conspiring to let you know what your new north or your direction is supposed to be. Yeah, and you're that, just moving those mountains. You're creating new new landscapes. And and I and I full I'm a full believer. I mean, my favorite book of all time. I don't read a lot of books, but um, favorite book of all time is The Purpose Driven Life, um, because in there he talks about we are we all have certain gifts, talents, passions, interests for a reason, because we were each uniquely made to fulfill a purpose in life. And so whatever your purpose is, your whole life is about aligning with that purpose and discovering what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that you can, you know, give it to the world. So what, out of this discovery of this year of dance, going back into the finance world, coming, getting laid off, getting back into dance after this, what 
have you discovered from from now and i know we're we're skipping from then until now but what is your purpose um I would say the time that I spent and that time post-recession, I did two things. I, I discovered two things. One is I rediscovered my love and my passion for dance and the fact that it has to live in my body. I have to be expressing myself through movement. When I am not, I don't feel, I don't feel okay. I don't, I'm not at my best. And I discovered my potential in dance in the, in the way that I got, I, I was part of a Broadway show and I have an actor's equity card and it's okay to, it's okay to be more than one person. You are not your resume. You are not an eight and a half by 11. We are multi-layered humans. And I realized that my creative self informs my financial self in a humongous way. Yeah. And there is space for both things. And so while I was, while I was living the life of a dancer for five intense years, and I still live the life of a dancer because I'm still part of a dance company I've been with for 12, 13 years. Um, I was also freelancing as a financial consultant and working with small and mid-sized businesses and in an entrepreneurial world, another world that I had no idea about. And yeah. my immigrant parents had no idea about it. And they were like, what are you doing? You're crazy. So, you know, it was two times over crazy. Um, <laughs> but what I learned is that there is room for all that you are. And even though I have my banker corporate friends and my dance creative friends and their perspectives and lives are very different. It's all within me and it's okay yeah. for, it's okay for me to, my friend calls me, he likes Trisha, Trisha 2.0. Trisha 2.0 is part creative and part technical. In fact, I took the Myers-Briggs test and I was high on, uh, on creative and high on technical. Yeah. was like really interesting. And this is before I pursued dance. And this is the foundation, just you realizing this, is the foundation of what brought you to create your company and how you named your company, correct? It absolutely did. Uh, I thought that I was going to be doing financial consulting and management for performing arts companies. That's what I started oh. out doing. I started out... Um, so, so when I got laid off from Citigroup, I was part of this jumpstart program that was sponsored by the then mayor de Blasio, who took um, people that were formerly of the banking industry, who were laid off from the banking industry, and lent us to what we'll consider non-traditional pathways, uh, which was nonprofit, startup, um, green tech, new media. And I was partnered with a nonprofit, Martha Graham Dance Company, and mm -hmm. I was like, this is amazing because... You're like, what? How could like, this happen? I was like, <laughs> the universe. Yeah. So I thought that that was going to be my path. And so I was like, you know, uh, I wanted to talk about money. I wanted to talk about financials. I love the, the artistic side of my, myself. So I was doing a play on words. The art of money matters. The funny thing is, uh, I didn't realize from a branding perspective that your name should indicate what you should, what you do. So <laughs> later on, I added the, the, the tagline, your outsource CFO, because I realized people couldn't understand from the name what mm -hmm. I did. 
Um, so that's a branding 101 lesson. Yeah. That I learned. <laughs> Uh, and then I also learned, um, I, I also learned in that time, uh, sort of what are the different financial experts there are in small and mid-sized business. So people start with a CPA, then they go to a bookkeeper and then, and then they need sometimes someone more strategic, someone to do budgeting and forecasting and all these more complicated things. And I had a hard time calling myself a, as a, a CFO because my perspective of CFO came from corporate. And I knew all that it took and all that in that job engendered. And I was like, small businesses don't need a CFO. But when I, when I got into it, I was like, well, I have to call myself something else. Yeah. Uh, that is, that is not some, some of the other, the other names of accounting and financial experts. So, so I was like, okay, well, I'm a part-time CFO, you know, like you can retain me part-time at a cost less than a full-time CFO. And so that's how I, um, that's how I grew into, into that, mm-hmm. into my business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that so much. And, and I really want to talk to you about this next chapter of your business, because I know you've been working as a, an outdoor CFO with various companies and it's, and you've been growing your business and combining this entrepreneur mindset with this creative ability that you have and, and this beautiful love that you have for the arts. Um, can we talk about this new chapter of Power Her Financials and how this came about for you? Uh, the motivation for Power Her Finance, the funny thing is I have been envisioning, like daydreaming about what it would be like to walk into a place and where you get your personal and your business financials done in the same place and together. And <clears throat> every time I thought about it, I was like, oh, this is probably something that some big company does. I would never do something like that. So <clears throat> that had been, that's in my subconscious. Last year I became treasurer of the National Association of Women Business Owners, New York City chapter. As a function of being in that organization, I end up talking to more women entrepreneurs and just realizing that there are conversations and ways of being um, beliefs and limiting beliefs that women entrepreneurs had. And I hadn't been keen on it until I read a report from the American Express uh, State of the Women-Owned Business. It's an annual report. And the one that I read said that women-owned businesses represent 40% of all U.S. businesses. Can you say that again? Women-owned and women-majority-owned businesses represent 40% of all U.S. businesses. Wow. Which is a beautiful number. And it continues to grow but less than 2% of those businesses get to a million dollars or more in revenue. Less than 2%. Less than 2%. And when I read that, I was like, this is ridiculous. Where did they get this number from? But it's American Express. So I figured it's clearly they got it from somewhere. And so I started researching, um, how could this be? And I started writing on what I found. There are external factors. There are old ways, of, old systematic ways of thinking, you know, men versus women, lack of access to capital, you know, all of these things. But then I started to key in a little bit more on the conversations that I was having with women in NABO, in and around NABO, NYC. And I realized, is there, I realized that there are some ways that we are, that if I'm generalizing, that don't allow themselves to grow a company. And 
So sat in the back of my mind as I would like to do something with that. Yeah. So what does that mean? Like there are some ways. So um, in having conversations, and this is like a new, a new part of the Power Her Financials effort. I said, I want to have a hundred conversations with women business owners and ask them these questions about their money mindset. And what I am finding is there are some people who are like, I'm so interested. I'm intrigued. I was curious. My parent was an entrepreneur. They taught me or they didn't, or my dad didn't teach me, but I was so curious about. And then there are, so there are some women who are like uh, having issues, struggling with asking for their worth and asking for more, more pricing and asking for the money that they are owed. Yeah. Right. So, so, so there's a, there's a worthiness conversation. There's also a, uh, from some people, I've done this by myself. There's a pride in saying, I figured it out. But if you're going to scale a company and grow a company, you can't do it alone. You can't figure out and know everything. You have to hire people. And you have to be okay with these are my strengths and these are my weaknesses and let me hire my weaknesses. And it's okay to say, I don't know because men do it all day. In fact, they make you believe they know everything about everything when they probably don't. And I've met them and they have $10 million plus businesses. Yeah. But they make, but, but, but they know how to sell their, their self and their worth and their value and their future value, even if they don't have it right now. Because that's what they're taught. And women are not doing the same thing in the same way. And that prevents us from growth. Yeah. You can't get to a million dollars if if you're feeling like I have to do it myself and I have to figure it out and I have to bootstrap myself because that would just give me such pride. It would give me such pride to be at a million dollars or ten million dollars. And if I need a team to do it with me, that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. You can't get there on your own. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And I, so what happened? um, I think that was beautiful and so true. What happened um, when you had this revelation and you were like, oh, I have to take action. Um, I know it happened, but can you tell (laughs) our listeners what happened? Well, what happened is I was part of this, uh, I'm part of this professional development course and as part of the course, they wanted you to put together an event. And I was going to put to, together an event for women entrepreneurs uh, having something to do with financial education. And the way I constructed it is I said, it's going to, my goal in working with companies this 10 years that I've been in business has been to educate, empower, and engage with um, not just women, but business owners around their financials. That is always my bottom line what I want to do for each client. Mm-hmm. So I took that same mantra of educate, engage, and empower around financials to women entrepreneurs. And I wanted an event, an interactive event with like multiple layers for women entrepreneurs. It was going to be half a day. It was going to be in person. That's what I planned in the beginning of the year. Then the pandemic came around, Rona. And she came and she destroyed <laughs> all my plans. But actually she gave me an opportunity because in my subconscious, while I was planning this thing, I was like, oh, this would be so cool if other, like, I could take this national and this could be, you know, international one day. And I shifted it to virtual and I didn't shift it on my own. 
there, there is a guy, there's an advisor that I have that was like, girl, what you going to do? Are you going to wait till coronavirus, you know, ends, which clearly is not doing that. Or are you going to stand for the thing that you want to see, which is women, women, empowered women. And I figured out a way and I pulled a team. See, there it goes. I pulled a team together to help me bring this conference to life virtually. And he said, oh, by the way, what would you want to do before or after this conference? And I sat in a Panera Bread on a Saturday for five hours, and I came up with the whole vision of Power Her Financials. And I was like, I don't know all the programming. I don't have to figure it all right now. But what, what this event now turned into was a launch and a kickoff to programming and a platform that I am building for women entrepreneurs to grow us to a million dollars and beyond in revenue. And so yeah. that's, that's where we are. The event happened on April 30th. It was amazing. Uh, it had such impact on people, which I'm so happy about. We had 62 people. We had a panel. We had roundtable facilitators. We even had sponsors. People were like, why are you charging? Yes, I charge $30 because you have to assign value to a thing for other people to value it as well. And yeah. I am so proud of the event that I'm going to have another one at the end of October. Yeah. And I just look forward to like what comes out of it, what grows out of it organically. I just feel, I feel the inertia of the universe at my back pushing me forward. And I am thankful for this opportunity that the pandemic has provided because there were people there from across the nation and there was a woman there internationally. And so the thing that was in my subconscious happened. Mm -hmm. So this is fully an, another reflection of a year or two ago, the tectonic plates of life were shifting in my yeah. life. And I just sat still and I was like, what is happening? What do I need to do? Let's figure it out. How do I figure it out? And being a performance-based person, it's hard to be still and wait for a thing to happen. But this is what came. I think it's really hard to be still in general and wait for something. I mean, we're always scrolling. We always want the new thing where it's really hard to sit in that space in a Panera bread for five hours and map out your whole program and what you want to see. Um, what I find amazing is that this is just such a concrete example of sitting in your space in that place and letting yourself be vulnerable and letting yourself figure out what you want and doing it. Not just sitting there and saying, oh, this is what I want, but it's too scary. I'm not going to do it. You not only did it, but you pivoted and you made it work and it became even bigger than you thought it was going to be. And what a beautiful gift that you gave yourself to just feel it and let it happen and let that energy come out there because not many people can follow through with that, but they need to. And we need more people to be, to be following through with those moments in their lives. Because I know for me, that's why we're sitting here doing this interview is because I went to your event. And I realized, oh, Yay! this is exactly what I love to do. And this is what I want to be doing. So thank you for doing that. And thank you for telling our listeners that you can do that. Because I think there's a lot of people who might have those thoughts swirling in their heads right now. And it doesn't have to be, you know, a power, her financials, big, huge thing. It can be one small moment in your life 
maybe you haven't exercised in a year or something like that. And you're, you're seeing this vision of you doing something. I think it's important to follow through with that. Can you give our listeners, cause I know we have to wrap up, but can you give our listeners, um, some advice on, on how to get past that fear? Because just from our conversation, you're very good at it. You're very mm-hmm. good at being afraid, but, but keeping that, that momentum. Can you give uh, me some advice? I realized that that was my go-to. Like, be afraid and anxious, but go <laughs> mm. <laughs> in spite of it. Uh, so I'm also a very driven person. So I think th- I have the, the battle between the, like, you know, the fear and the anxiety battles with the drive, and then the drive always wins. Um, mm. I think people should know, uh, know their why, whatever they're doing, know their why. Um, in order to get past the doubt and the fear that comes in with doing something new or trying something new, you have to take care of yourself. You have to give, feed yourself the things that you need that give you comfort. And I'm not just talking about food. I'm talking about uh, whoever your, your God or your ultimate power is. I'm talking about tapping into that. For me, it's God, it's Jesus Christ. So for me, it's prayer. Um, what helps me get connected to that is meditation. What, help me, what helps me get connected to source and center and universe is also movement. That's my thing. That's why dance is so critical to my life. And, and modalities like yoga and Pilates, which at some point I was a Pilates instructor. We didn't talk about that. <laughs> um, so surround, your, take care of yourself and be good to yourself. Mm-hmm. If you're having a day where you feel funky or you're having a fit or you're just feeling sad, allow yourself to feel the feeling for 24 hours and then get up and take an action. When I take an action, there's no way that I can be steeped in this fear and anxiety because you're taking an action. like it, Whatever it is, it's the exercise, it's you know, contacting someone, it's doing a, doing something that you have on your list of to-dos because we all have that list. Once you're in that action, then you just like get motivated and you find yourself out of the emotion. So I would say don't stay in that place. Uh, surround yourself with people that genuinely love and care about you. Uh, we all need a place where we can have a safe space. Yeah. So whoever that, and don't put the burden on one person, right? Uh, talk to talk to people, be in spaces and places where there are people that think like you and share your same values, and you feel like you can rest on them, and they can rest on you. That has been very critical. Yeah. Um, and I would say, always have advisors or mentors around you that you that inspire you, or have been in a place where you're trying to go. Because they can also help you realize that, yeah, that's valid, but it's not a big deal. And we can, (laughs) you can get it moving and it's okay. This will happen. This thing will happen. Mm -hmm. Um, Those are some things that I did. And I have to thank God for this personal development program because right before we went to the pandemic, Uh, I was in the middle of the workshop and they were talking about a thing about like being committed to a vision and not attached to how you get there. Mm. 
And that's a big one. Yeah. As a performance-based person, I'm always committed to like performance and a result. Also, I feel like I haven't accomplished anything. Even though I've accomplished a lot in life, I'm always looking to the next thing and the next thing and how do I... And so it is a continuous and a constant work for me to be present in the moment and look at what is and continue to be committed to an ultimate vision and not how the pathways that I take to get there. That is continuous work that I journal about and focus on. So beautiful. Yeah. Those are some things. Beautiful. Thank you, Trisha, for sharing. And thank you for being here. I really, your journey is just so amazing and and your mindset is amazing and how you conquer fear is just incredible. And I think there's just so many lessons in that. Um, You are a powerhouse and I was so excited to talk to you today. So thank you for being here. Where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you? Well, first of all, I want to say thank you for this platform. And thank you for being courageous enough to uh, invite other women to be on this platform with you and for reopening yourself to the world. You know, whatever your vision is, I venture to say part of your vision is probably being in service. And so you stay with that vision no matter what the path looks like. Thank you. And, and, and it will work for you. So, for, so thanks for having thanks. this space. Yeah. Um, how people can get in touch with me. See, I'm not as great at the, 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 net, the marketing part. But <laughs> <laughs> so, Art of, so my company, artofmoneymatters.com. If you want to work with me, there's one-on-one services. I work with business owners that tend to be like a million or more in revenue. Um, power Her Financials. For the women entrepreneurs and executives that are out there, Uh, if you're established, you've been in the trenches and you either are trying to manage the financials yourself or you have someone internally and you feel like, you know what, I need to have a better command of these things. Mm -hmm. Go to powerherfinancials.com. We're actually revamping the website right now. So it might be under some construction or still be. Um, But powerherfinancials.com, look out for ways to join our community. Also, Facebook community is Power Her Financials. And stay tuned for a conference at the end of October. And Perfect. Other, other programming. I love oh, it. Yeah. Trisha Tate, thank you so much. Please, please, please reach out to her. I mean, and if you can attend this event in October, you must. It's a wonderful, wonderful event. And full of women from all sorts of backgrounds and areas and levels in their businesses that are just coming together and having those moments of vulnerability and learning and growing with each other, which is, act- is exactly the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing because I want to be vulnerable and grow with all of you. So Trisha, thank you so much for being here. Our listeners, thank you so much for listening. I am grateful you're here. Thank you for being here. and We'll see you next week. Thank you.